Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and you might ask me, Bill, what kind of day are you having? And I would say, oh, I'm having a really good day. Why are you having a good day, Bill? Well, because I'm going to start my show talking to a U.S. Uh, senator. I'm going to talk to Senator uh, Rob Clements from Nebraska. He's a state senator from the great state of Nebraska in the 2nd District, and he's joining me on the program today. He's a busy guy, so I'm going to get right to it. Rob, welcome. Hello, Bill. Thank you. You know, I've always been concerned uh, when it comes to politics that politics attracts a lot of the wrong kind of people, maybe people that are interested in uh, power. Um, And when I look at you and the way you go about your life, you're interested in serving, which I find so admirable. Thank you. Yes. You know, I've been a state senator for six years and it took two years before I realized I was a politician. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> I fantastic. Like to think of myself as a representative. Yeah, I love that. Now, when, when politics enters uh, your life, I mean, it puts a lot of demands. Uh, you've got to answer a lot of uh, calls and shake a lot of hands uh, and, and serve the public. And that is, can be difficult as a family man who wants to serve the Lord and love his family, and be as present as possible. I'd love for you to talk about the challenges that represented for you. Well, I was appointed by the governor to fill the vacancy. I hadn't really expected to be a candidate, but uh, the governor called and invited me to serve, and I uh, felt like it was a God thing, and I know it was. And so uh, it is a sacrifice. It was three times more time-consuming than I ever thought. We have five married children and 13 grandchildren, and it does mean missing school programs and baseball games. Um, but I've found it um, to be worthwhile. I'm glad I'm doing it and uh, upholding the conservative pro-life vote in the legislature here. Mm-hmm. And recently you were just uh, reelected. Do I have that correct? No, I was elected in 2018 and up for election in 2022 for a final term. Yeah. Now, we're very interested in hearing uh, your work with pro-life and the anticipating uh, the anticipation of of the SCOTUS decision. Uh, I would love for you to talk about that. Well, I have been a co-sponsor of every pro-life bill that we've had brought forward in Nebraska in the last six years. And uh, we've had some success. We uh, did, uh, two years ago, uh, ban dismemberment abortion. Um, and if we have a favorable SCOTUS decision, that will, that will send the abortion laws back to each state to um, govern. And Nebraska is a pro-life state, but our bills do get filibustered by the opposition, which means we need two-thirds majority or 33 votes and um, it has been difficult. Um, we have a current ban uh, on abortion after 20 weeks, and we would like to uh, reduce that. We had a bill, LB 933, in 2022, 
which would be an abortion ban, complete ban, if the court rescinded Roe. Uh, we got 31 of 33 votes needed. And so uh, we're not sure if a special session will be called. Our governor can call a special session if Roe is rescinded, and we'll find out what he wants to do at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator, if Roe is rescinded and you say you already have 31 of 33 votes needed? Yes. Okay. So uh, you're well on your way uh, to that um, happen- happening, it sounds. When you think of the rhetoric that's going on right now at the Supreme Court protesters, and they're acting like uh, like Roe is going to be overturned and an abortion will be banned, that's simply not true. What? How do you have conversations with people when they come out and make statements like that? Well, it's uh, yeah, it's going to be state by state, mm-hmm. and um, there we're not sure what will happen in each state. And Nebraska, we didn't have votes to do a complete ban. We may go with a heartbeat bill instead, and but I think we will propose something more restrictive than the twenty weeks we currently have. Mm-hmm. So when you hear about uh, abortion only available in terms of if there is a danger to the mother, I, I was going through my memory banks, which aren't the greatest, but I can't remember a time when I remember a mother's life being at stake. It's extremely rare. I, I agree. And uh, we you know, we had an exception for um, normal Procedures with uh, the life of the mother being in danger, uh, that was an exception in our proposal. Hmm. And and we'll continue to have that so that physicians can protect the life of the mother when needed. Mm -hmm. So, Senator, as a a Christian, I I would just love to hear your your heart about the, the, the life of the unborn. I'd just love to hear you talk about that. Well be glad to talk about that. I uh, study a lot about our founding fathers, and our founding fathers said all men are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if a fetus has no right to life, then they have no right to any other, they have no other rights. And um, what I've been seeing is that God has been removed from society the last 40 or 50 years and removed from schools, removed from legislatures. And I've found that uh, the opposition see government as their God, and therefore government has the answer to all problems. We've switched to humanism versus the Bible standard. If it feels good, do it. But um, that's really not working. And um, what I'm seeing is that People are wanting to take back the government. We conservatives are, and we're getting on school boards and county boards and city councils. And um, the 49-year effort to stop abortion with all the work pro-life organizations done has is, is been effective. And I really thank all those people that have stepped forward and put in the effort um, to take back our country. Mm-hmm. Was there a filibuster where your vote made the difference? Oh, yes. Um, The (laughs) dismemberment abortion ban two years ago, uh, we needed 33 votes, and I was the 33rd vote. It was the most satisfying thing I've done 
as a legislator. Um, and uh, after that, uh, the government governor asked me if I was glad I was doing this, and I said, well, I know that my opponent would have voted no, and I was very pleased. The sacrifices that I've had to put in to be there was very much worth it at that point. Mm-hmm. When you look at what's happened in the abortion um, industry, I hate to use that word, but I don't know, there's been 60-plus million babies that have uh, been sent to their death uh, inside the mother's womb, which should be the safest place in the world inside a mother's womb. Um, what do you think will happen in terms of uh, our country, in terms of the the... Will there be a civil war? Will there be, uh, you know, there's already protests going on as a result of Roe v. Wade being overturned. What, what do you think is going to be happening? Well, nobody knows, but um, uh, it's interesting that we conservatives are always called intolerant. And the tolerant ones are seemingly be the ones who are threatening Supreme Court justices and private individuals and property um, so I, I hope that um, law enforcement is able to control any uprising of that sort, um, but I'm not sure. I, I do want to comment, but I think if abortion is restricted, I think we need to support pregnant women um, more than we do now. It's going to make it important for pregnancy health organizations to step up and for churches to step up to give more assistance. I couldn't agree more, uh, Senator Clements. He's my guest. He's a, a state senator from the great state of Nebraska and uh, very uh, involved in pro-life uh, bills in the state of Nebraska. And when I think of how many, many couples would love to adopt, and I see this, the statistics that say that roughly 90% of abortions are done because of inconvenience. And I, I, I wonder... If if that's the case, um, yeah, what can we do as believers in churches and adoption agencies to be right there ready to be more supportive? Well, my own family, we've had a daughter who uh, uh, had an unplanned pregnancy and went for an adoption decision, and I was very pleased with that. The, the family that adopted this little girl was thrilled and we've had an open adoption it's been a blessing to both us and and the adoptive parents and uh, in nebraska we have a nebraska children's home society that does no cost adoptions we have a christian heritage organization that does foster care and places for adoption and i think we need to support nonprofits like that and help them be able to advertise and make themselves more well-known to young women. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator, when you uh, think of the opposition in the Nebraska legislature, do you find that this particular issue, abortion, is the most emotional one out there, or is there others equally emotional? I think this is probably the most emotional, yes. We have some race issues at times, but um, this is very emotional, and it's, uh, from my point of view, it's hard to imagine that people don't realize that this is a real life at conception, and they're just in denial about it. You know, 50 years ago, it wasn't sure whether it was just a lump of tissue, but now with ultrasound and video, um, they can't deny, really, that it's a human life. 
but they are denying that, and it does surprise me. Yeah, there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty going on, but their ideology is so strong that they can't they can't bend an inch. Correct. Yeah, because if they're conducting abortions at that late stage, they are, you know, literally uh, killing a formed, fully formed child. Um, in, and yeah, in our debates in the legislature, the opposition really only talks about women's health care, and it's about women and and women and women, and they really never discuss the baby. They don't really want to talk about the baby. They just talk about women's rights and women's health care. But I bet on your side, the baby comes up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You know, we get uh, follow the science on things like climate change, but uh, they never bring up follow the science in the abortion day opposition. Thank you for saying that, Senator. I have been feeling that in my heart forever, that that is so true. We're supposed to follow the science, except when it comes to looking at this ultrasound of this precious child that's being knit together in her mother's womb or his mother's womb, and there you go. I'm going to take a short break. Senator Rob Clements is my guest. He's a state senator from Nebraska, 2nd District, and we'll be right back with him in just a minute. show if you just join me i'm speaking to senator rob clements the state senator from the great state of nebraska in the second district we're talking about the pro-life and the uh scotus decision of uh, roe v wade which is likely going to be overturned it seemed not that long ago uh, rob in 1992 uh, then candidate bill clinton said that abortion should be safe legal and rare boy we've traveled quite a distance in that time haven't we Yes, we have, Bill. When you hear people talk that way, and then we are at a point where there is so much of it going on, I'm thinking that there must be, when I look at the surrounding states, I don't know if if Kansas, Iowa, uh, Colorado, I know they're very liberal, but in Minnesota here, because they will allow abortions if this gets overturned, I know there is a, a clinic in North Dakota that I think is already setting up shop just across the border. So they're going to be a little bit of further distance to travel. Do you know if there are abortion providers in Nebraska that are setting up to do that as well? No, it's looking like Nebraska is going to be more restrictive. Um, Even if it isn't a total ban, it may be a heartbeat bill. I I have heard that Colorado, though, is uh, having clinics preparing for uh, Nebraskans and other people to come in. Well, this is... um certainly a decision that we are very ready to hear. I, I, I think when it got leaked, I thought, boy, they should come out with the decision right away. Can you believe all the protest and all the um, threats that are going on with the, the judges? I mean, why do you not think that the the attorney general is doing something about the protecting? And I guess it's against the law to protest in front of a judge's house. Yes, it is. And it's an agenda that uh, liberals have. The current administration, they will just support their side. Here in Nebraska, we have an organization, Nebraska Family Alliance. It's a pro-life nonprofit, 
And during our debate on our LB 933 abortion ban, they had threats. They had to call law enforcement to help uh, secure with security in, in their office. Uh, they've actually added more security, worrying about whether there's going to be more backlash to them once Roe is rescinded. When you have debates, legislature in Nebraska, do you find that they are more emotional than other? I know we mentioned that in the previous segment about how emotional this issue is, but when you're having debates, do they largely remain civil or are they just uh, shouting matches? Our conservatives, the pro-life conservatives, we like to just deal with the facts. Yeah. The facts that it's a baby and it's a life. The other side does get emotional and uh, they accuse us, we men especially, that we're not women and that we should stay out of women's business and we should should get out of the the doctor's and the mother's examination room and let them make their own decisions. And so that's how the debate has gone. But what about the baby that's inside their womb? <laughs> what about that life? Exactly. Who's going to be the advocate for that life? Right. Well, we have to be. The baby is always ignored by the um, opponents. They just talk about the woman and her body. But it, you know, we all know that the baby has a different DNA than the mother does. It's two different people, but they uh, ignore that fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob, what? How are how are dollars involved in an issue like this? I always say, well, follow the money. What's going on in that? Well, we have some campaigns going on for some state senator elections, and uh, we have some pro-life candidates that the uh, pro-abortion candidates are funding, heavily funding their opponents to try to keep us from getting our 33 um, filibuster-proof majority. And so there's hundreds of thousands of dollars being brought in uh, to support the pro-abortion candidates. But when you think of conservative states in the Midwest, in the country, I, I always think Nebraska is right up there with one of the top conservative states. Would I be right in saying that? We are in terms of the population. I okay. think the population is 70% pro-life. But this money comes in from the coast, from New York, <laughs> and from California, yeah. and um, not necessarily that much from directly Nebraskans. Mm-hmm. When you look at, I don't know if you've looked at the law, the Roe v. Wade, I remember hearing Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the time saying, well, it's just poorly written law. And, you know, I think the Supreme Court's justices, they're they're supposed to call the balls and strikes. They're not uh, bringing in their political agenda. They're supposed to just say, is the law written well? And if it's not, it should be rescinded. Um, Have you had a chance to see that law and look at it? Do you ag- agree with it? I have not read it, uh, definitely, because it's not going to change my opinion on how <laughs> I'm going to vote. Yeah, but nor I do, would you know, you know, I do realize that they took the 14th Amendment, which has a privacy provision, and they stretched it beyond imagination to try to cover uh, abortion, legalizing abortion. And uh, it... Uh, I'm so glad that we do have some Supreme Court justices who will follow the Constitution. And things that aren't delegated to the federal government are uh, supposed to be 
uh, decided by the states. And that's really, I think, what's really going on here is that there's too much federal overreach and that this is a state-by-state issue. And I'm glad to see that we're going to have a chance to have each state um, regulate themselves. I am excited about that as well. I think that's exactly what should be, that it should be relegated to the states. I believe that's where it belongs. And I think it gives many, many states an opportunity to say, no, we would prefer to not have abortion legal in our state. And, of course, it's going to make a lot of people mad. But you know what? We're, it's progress, right? We're, we're helping the un- save the life of an unborn. Yes, and I've been around quite a while. I'm 71 already. And uh, I remember before Roe versus Wade, abortion was illegal in Nebraska. I'm glad that Nebraska back then had that position, and I think we're able, we'll be able to restrict it again if we have the chance. Yeah. Uh, last time I think I was in uh, the country of Ireland, the whole uh, country was against, it was illegal to get an abortion. So, uh, of course, they've They've flopped over as well. But, yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad it's going back to the States. We do live in a different time, and I'm glad there's people like yourself that are out fighting uh, to make changes and to uh, support pro-life and to, and to uh, just to do it with passion. So, Rob, thank you for doing that. Senator, do you enjoy the work in the political arena? I'm glad to be doing my part, but not that enjoyable. And the Lord reminded me... Um, what if somebody would have asked Paul in prison if he's enjoying it? <laughs> James, he would have said no, but he would have said, I'm glad I'm doing it. And uh, turned out to be most of the New Testament. And uh, so the Lord is just kind of telling me, um, be glad you're doing it. It's, I didn't say it was going to be easy. You know, they hated me. They'll hate you also. Is what It comes back to me a lot. Um, and when I hear that hatred, I think, well, Lord... Um, you put me here, and I'm, thank you for being with me. That, uh, that's uh, how I feel about this. And uh, term limits are my friend is the other thing I say. i got four more years, and then we'll find another person to pick up the mantle. Mm. Beautiful. Great story, Rob. Thank you for sharing that. You have 13 grandkids, huh? Yes, I do. And what are the uh, how many boys, how many girls? Eight boys and five girls. Um, the oldest is was 22 yesterday oh, and the wow. youngest is two-year-old <laughs> that's quite a picnic in your backyard isn't it yes we love family time yeah are you the grill master yes uh, yeah memorial day we had burgers on the grill and a lot of bigger grill a couple of years ago <laughs> it was full <laughs> it sounds lovely i'm gonna have to get your address and swing by Fourth sometime of july yeah come on down oh i look forward to that Rob, thank you so much for taking time to be on our show. I know you have a busy uh, schedule, and I know you uh, squeezed me in today. So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you, Bill, and I, uh, God bless all the pro-life people that are working hard for us. Amen. Thank you so much. Senator Rob Clements has been my guest, a state senator from the 2nd District in Nebraska. All right, we'll take a break, and we'll be uh, right back with Dr. Peter Kapsner as we start uh, on First Corinthians. That's next. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. 
What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. You know, uh, Paul was very intimately involved with the church in Corinth, and he pretty much led in its establishment, and he kept in very close touch with it, and he was uh, very involved right from the ground level. So what would the words, what would Paul's words have sounded like to people living in Corinth in the first century? And that's the topic of our discussion for many weeks coming up with Dr. Peter Kapsner. We're calling this toga time. So you have to transport yourself into being a first century Corinthian so we can understand how Paul's words would have fallen on our ears. So that's the topic. Peter uh, Kapsner is my guest. And he's with me in studio. Peter, you are the Cal Ripken of radio today. I, I, I you, feel you, you filled in for Carmen this I morning. Did indeed. Yeah, it's great yeah. to be. It's so fun to be with those morning faith radio listeners. They're the just best. They're, they're wonderful. It's the best. Yeah, it's really delightful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, not like the afternoon listeners. Though. Well, you they're know, I, the best they, they, by far. By just far. even a cut above. Don't tell the morning show listeners. <laughs> no, I'm not that, going so, to. Yeah, I'm not, not going to. <laughs> but we had this uh, conversation months ago about what, what would it be like if you were a first century uh, Corinthian and you were hearing Paul's words. Because we hear them today in 2022, and we think we understand them. But what would they be sounding like to the ears of first century Corinthians? So we thought, let's get people in the mood, in the mode. Let's transport them to uh, first century Corinth. And back then, they were wearing togas. So here we are. It's called toga time. Toga time. I love love the name of the series. Okay, good. I love the way that you set that up, too. I think what you just described, Bill, is so critical for somebody who wants to become a student of the scriptures. I said this a number of times, and and it's been true even through my 20 years of vocational ministry as someone who's taught the scriptures in both undergraduate and seminary levels, that I think I can safely say that the scriptures are really difficult to understand. I I think we don't want them to be uh, difficult to understand. I think we want it to just be pretty plain and easy when we open up something in the English text, and, and it just speaks to us immediately, and we know all of what's going on. But it just doesn't really function that way, and it's because of what you just said. It's because uh, when they wrote the scriptures, it's now over 2,000 years ago. It was a very different time. It was a very different setting. And I think we can even safely say that it's highly doubtful that Paul even was setting out to do something called writing scripture. So, oh, yeah, you know, excellent I don't think, point. It, 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 sometimes I think in my head that we think of the scriptures as Paul and a bunch of guys getting together one afternoon in some Mediterranean school of divinity and say, hey, this is going to be in the Bible. That's right. They said we should we should probably work this out, and you know, and maybe it's him and and James is hanging out next to him. He's like, yeah. James, I know you you like to talk about faith and works, and and that's a little screwy theology. And Martin Luther will correct that sixteen hundred <laughs> years from now, and mm-hmm. or maybe Peter's there, and he's saying, Peter, you, you get pretty passionate about stuff. You should talk about Jesus descending into the earth and a divine people and all of that. Or John is sitting there, and he says to John, just hang out a bit. You'll you'll write in about forty or fifty years from some island on Patmos. Me, Paul. I'm just going to write this big systematic theology book right now. We're going to start with something called Galatians and go from there. And and we treat the text that way. But really what was going on was something very different back then, where Paul was just on the front end of an incredibly new movement of ministry. And I think understanding what was going on in that first century will really help all of us some 2,000 years later begin to better understand what's going on in the text and then how we can understand it for our lives today. I love that. So, you know, uh, Corinth was one of the most prosperous cities. I mean, commerce was strong. So let's just get into the mode. So I'm in my toga. I've just come out of lunch at Bennigan's in first century corn. <laughs> I think Bennigan's was around in about the first century, as a matter of fact. I think it was. Yes. And uh, let's get into some of the background. 
Yeah, I think part of what I love about this book is that uh, it really was a unique city. Uh, it, it is situated on a, about a six-mile wide isthmus or, or just a stretch of land that separated two major bodies of water. And so what would tend to happen is that as trade routes were being developed in that first century world, and especially the Roman Empire was incredibly helpful in developing these trade routes uh, because they had such a strong military, such a strong economic presence that through what was called Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome, that uh, in that peace, they just spread out this empire really far west and east, as far north as the British Isles. So it was really easy to travel, and that opened up a ton of economic commerce. And so what would happen is ships might get loaded somewhere in the Europe or, or Asian area on maybe the west side in these bodies of water, and they would sail down. And instead of having to sail all the way around down the coast of Africa and around Cape Horn and back up again, they would often stop right in the six-mile-wide isthmus where the city of Corinth was. And, uh, and they would put their ships up on wheels, and then they would cross over. They would roll these really? gigantic ships. Yeah, they would roll them right across this isthmus to the other side. It was sort of their version of a Panama Canal without okay. a canal. It, they, <laughs> they, just, they would get up on yeah. these wheels and roll across. And the significance of that meant that Corinth really developed as this prosperous city, as you said, because it really attracted most of the entrepreneurial types of the Roman Empire. They said, we're going to have endless streams of possible constituency to, to hawk our wares to mm-hmm, in, yeah. in a variety of ways. So it drew a whole motley crew of people. It really was kind of a first century Pirates of the Caribbean town, if yeah. you want to imagine it that way. It filled with all kinds of people, all kinds of walks of life, all kinds of religions. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about a church is emerging in the midst of this. You could have gotten some of the finest spices and silks that you could get anywhere right there, huh? You absolutely could. And what was the intellectual climate like? Yeah, real similar uh, as to what you might imagine when it's drawing that many people, then mm-hmm. uh, there was it was a highly intelligent place as well. And and because of that, Bill, I think one of the most important things that we need to understand in this church of Corinth is that you had a lot of powerful people that were very opinionated about what was true and about what mattered. And so in the same way that we experience it, I think, sometimes in in some of our churches today, when you have people that are really successful in certain walks of life, they wield a certain power, a certain maybe intellectual sophistication, or they might have a lot of money and they've been successful that way. Well, you gather together 50, 100, 200, 300 people in the church they're all going to be pretty opinionated about how things should go in that church. And that's exactly what we see is that coming out of the city of Corinth and now coming into the church, you have a lot of power players, you have a lot of sophistication, you have a lot of different kinds of religious backgrounds going on, and they all believe that they're right. So it it really is a terribly divided church, really different than some of the other churches to whom Paul had to minister and write letters to. Um, Galatia, for example, was a church in which there was Jewish teachers that were promoting the idea that you had to still obey Old Testament law Mm -hmm. in order to be part of the community. So Paul has to write a letter to them that is all about how, no, now we live by the Spirit, not by law. So when you start understanding some of these contexts this way, and you see Corinth was this motley pirates of the Caribbean town, really successful people, intellectually successful as well, Paul is now speaking to a very, very divided church that's filled with a lot of power plays. Yeah, but Paul's ministry there was quite fruitful, and I think he had spent more time there than any other missionary journey. Yeah, he and and yet he was um, often derided by the community there, and that, they, they were seeking to to sort of um, always diminish him in his ministry. And, and Paul is so interesting in the midst of all of this power that you see uh, on display in the church in Corinth because Paul 
was probably the most well-regarded Jewish teacher of the mm-hmm. law or among the top 1% sure. of the, you know, he, he talks about that. He had everything. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, zealot of zealot. He was born at the right time. He had all of the rites and rituals. And so he brought the gospel to Corinth. And uh, again, one thing in terms of understanding how this worked is that Paul would follow the lead of the Spirit to a city, and upon arriving at the city, he would begin to pray and minister and preach the gospel, and sure enough, people would come out of the woodwork and want to join his church. And he would be there for maybe a couple of years or so, and he would be the leading voice. He would be the respected voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, after maybe 18 months or two years or so, then he would leave, and he would follow the Spirit's call to go to another part of the Mediterranean world to plant another church. This is part of what we see in, in the invitation that Jesus gives them in Acts chapters 8, 9, and 10, where he says, you're going to go and be a missionary to the Gentiles. So he's not meant to be the long-term pastor at Corinth. He's going to set up a church, but here's what happens, and this gets to your point now, is he leaves, and what he leaves behind is a, is now a group of people who are really smart and they kind of want to maybe carve their own way. They don't want to listen to what Paul had to say. And so um, what will end up happening is after about six months or nine months, Paul will inevitably be in another city and a messenger will come and say, Paul, dude, you can't believe what's happening in the city of Corinth right now. Mm-hmm. They, they are divided. They are diminishing you. They are deriding you. They say you're foolish. You don't know what you're talking about. We have secret wisdom. We have secret knowledge. We know the way forward way better than this person does. Paul didn't seem to want to to establish his power. He was always reducing himself for Jesus. He was doing stuff. Yeah, the world doesn't work that way, Paul. Like we, we've really got to establish this powerful church. And And Paul was very busy in another city. So he would say, well, I can't go back, but here's what I can do. I'm going to write a letter. And now this is how these letters work. So back to our earlier conversation, Paul was not sitting on a Mediterranean seashore with James and John and, and Jude and whoever else deciding mm-hmm. to write scripture. He was writing a letter back because he couldn't get back there that quickly. And then somebody like a Timothy or an Epaphroditus would take that letter back to the church in Corinth and would read the letter of Paul out loud. That is a moment that, boy, if I could rewind myself in history, I would love to be sitting there in that congregation when Paul's letter arrives and somebody sits down and just reads this letter back to them. Yeah, and then um, I could have taken you to lunch at Bannigan's. That Exactly. I'm sure <laughs> they would have had that full, that full smorgasbord <laughs> back then, too. But it really, I, I just love the context of all of that because yeah. there really is, a, that's probably the most important thing we need to understand, generally speaking, before we head into the letter, yeah. is that there really is this huge tug of war between a number of people that are wielding a lot of power in the church and dividing over it and seeking to to get rid of Paul's influence because his gospel's foolish. Are you kidding me? Right. I mean, whoever mm-hmm. gives up their life for the sake of following Jesus, we're here to exert our power. And, yeah. and so that context really helps. Interesting. So as we're just trying to lay the foundation for our study. We're not going to necessarily get into scripture today, are we? No, I don't think so. I think uh, yeah. it's really helpful to just, you know, when you pick up a commentary, um, if, if you're not familiar with the, the, what a commentary is, is I think it's one of the more helpful tools with which to get into Scripture in the ways that you and I are doing today. Okay. Because uh, I had a, <clears throat> a whole class on First Corinthians in seminary, and we had one book that we had to read, but it was 1,200 pages long. It was F.F. F. Bruce was the author, and he wrote a commentary on the book of First Corinthians. And usually a commentary will have what's called background information, and anywhere between 30 to 75 to 80 pages long, and it takes you into the story before you actually get into the letter itself. And that's what I think we can do today. I think that's Because important. it sets the context up. Yeah, it does beautifully. Yeah. So Paul arrives in Corinth, and is that when he initially gets a, a, acquainted with Aquila and Priscilla? Yeah, it sure sounds that did, way. Did it sound like that <clears throat> maybe he 
lodged with them, hung out with them. Yeah, they were some of his really key partners yeah. in ministry, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Yeah, and I think that information that you're describing, this is where another way of helping understand or unlock the text, it's really helpful to read the book of Acts alongside of some of these letters because you 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 get the narrative of Paul's journey and who he's meeting up with, who he's staying with, some of his partners in ministry, because this book of Corinthians, you just open it up, and in the first seven or eight verses, he's referencing four or five or six people I know that you wouldn't even know who these people are unless you also have some of the narrative that's happening in the book of Acts alongside of it. And Priscilla and Aquila were two of his most faithful companions in ministry. I mean, it's another thing I think we can safely say is that Paul was under threat intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, physically, everywhere that he went. And yet uh, he is almost always in his letters referencing some of those most most faithful companions to him that are sharing in the burden of bringing the gospel to these places. And it's another point I think that we can take away just by background that as we're establishing the gospel and sharing the good news, it's really hard to do that alone. And and I think we gloss over the biblical text to some of our more favorite passages from time to time. Mm-hmm. But that opening verse of First Corinthians, when he's referencing one of his friends that he's with in those moments, just sit in that for a while. That, yeah, that's, no as, that's as God-breathed as any other verse in the book of First Corinthians. So I think that's going to be part of our invitation moving forward as we get into this series is that we're going to take all of these verses seriously, not just the ones we know. Yeah, awesome. And Paul shows up and starts his tent-making business. I mean, he's going to be in Corinth for a year and a half. He's not going to uh, just be hanging out. He's going to be working, right? Well, I think that's another thing we can absolutely learn is um, that he's able to say things to the church at Corinth because he's not drawing his income from the church at Corinth. And uh, Mm. that is, uh, having been in pastoral ministry for uh, a lot of years, I know the hidden tension in which a lot of pastors live when when the food on the table is coming from the vocation in which they're engaged. And um, one one of the conversations I have with ministry students right out of the chute is I'll say, will you ever compromise the gospel? Because when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul is not ever compromising the gospel. And so I'll ask my students, would you ever compromise anything about the gospel uh, at all. And of course, they're all like, no, ho, oh, oh, no, no way would we ever do that. No, you know, they're very sort of almost brave heart right. about it. You know, oh, we're, yeah. we're coming for you. And and then we start laying out the idea. So let, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. Um, your income is coming from maybe 100 people in your congregation and 20 of the powerful people of your congregation want to leave, just like there were in the city of Corinth uh, and the church of Corinth. And they're going to they're going to vote with their money. And if they leave and they want to go a whole different direction with the church, that's unbiblical in ways that you don't want to go mm-hmm. and you think you shouldn't go. But if they leave, you can't put food on the table. Ooh. Now what are you going to do? Yeah. <clears throat> and the room gets pretty quiet. And Paul doesn't ever have to deal with that dynamic because he simply is making a living and then doing ministry outside of that. And I think it's a great template for all of us. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the show. This is Toga Time. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and continue our discussion of what it was like to be a first century Corinthian living in Corinth and hearing Paul's words when he writes letters how would those words have, how would they fall on your ears if you were in Corinth at the time? That is the topic. Dr. Peter Kapsner is our teacher, and it is toga time. We'll be right back.
been settled with that theme song for a long time. And that was you. I thrust that, that on you, you years did ago. You me with that. Yeah, I that was did. when we first met. I think your first impression led to that song. Well, I think when I said, Peter, what are we going to talk about? And you go, I don't know. I go, well, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> I think how that's that how we down. started. Yeah, indeed. Because we went from a meeting, uh, a coffee meeting right here in the building to walking across the hall to the studio and starting our first interview just... To get to know each other. Yeah, you you completely caught me off guard in the, the first moment I ever met you. That's exa- I was yeah. not expecting to walk into studio and have to take... And we talked about human sexuality. We did? The first time we ever met Sad yeah, no you. Yeah, it, oh, it was... Wow, well, yeah, I'm still a little wounded by the whole yeah, thing. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about uh, life in Corinth. In If you were a first century uh, person living in Corinth, how would Paul's letters... What would they sound like to you? So we call this... Uh, Toga time, so you don't have to wear a toga to listen to this episode unless you want to, but you're certainly welcome if you want to. But um, Peter and I are not in togas, Correct. just so you know. Yes. I want to make that clear. But if you were living in uh, in Corinth in the first century, you probably were wearing a toga. For sure you were. Yeah. I mean, that would have been yeah. a common, common attire yeah. at that time. Yeah. So let's get back to just setting up the context. Uh, maybe, Peter, do you have some examples you can give? Uh, yeah, to well, elaborate on this it's, as we it's try to put it in context? For sure. I know it's one you've covered on your on your show before, and we've even talked about it a bit, but I think it, it's helpful, is that probably the most famous passage that comes out of 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. It's love is patient and kind, and, and all of what we use at weddings, and, and as we could and should. But uh, I think it's really helpful to understand a couple of things, first of all, is that uh, Paul was not writing with chapters and, and verses. They came much later. He just he, later he just wrote a letter. Mm-hmm. And, and we put in chapters and verses when it started getting published to make it easier to find places. So to, to just start with 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, misses so much of what came before that because it was just part of the flow of his thought. And, and so when you go back into 1 Corinthians 10 through 12, Paul begins to address some of the divisions going on that we described earlier in the church. And one of them has to do with the exercise of spiritual gifts as they were manifesting in the church back then. They were speaking in tongues back then. It's a subject I'm sure we'll cover along the way in, this, in the Toga series. How do we understand that? Mm-hmm. They had prophetic words. They had um, all kinds of these different gifts. And and the point um, is that as they were constantly dividing in this church, Paul kept saying, no, the purpose of spiritual gifts is to edify and bring up the body. It, it, it is to help um, bear witness to the community that God is forming in you and, and among you by the power of the Spirit. So the gifts are not for you to somehow show off or to seem better than or to self-actualize. I mean, I even think sometimes in the church today, Bill, we use the pursuit of gifts to try to understand ourselves, almost as if they're a, a personality test or something oh, like that's that. That's so interesting. And, and, right? And, yeah. and, 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 and they were struggling with some of that too. But Paul says, no, any gift you've been given is meant for the edification and the building up of the body. And then he ends chapter 12 with this statement, and this is what sets up chapter 13. He says, now, instead of all of that, let me show you the more excellent way. And you can't understand 1 Corinthians 13 unless you start with that. Let me show you the more ex- uh, the excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And, and then, of course, the passage goes from there. Chapter 13 is all about the heart of the Christian community, is the exercise of the gifts given to you by the Spirit that are meant to operate in love for the building up of the community so that you can bear witness to the now and coming kingdom of Jesus. As you work with love for one another, they'll know we're Christians by our love. Mm -hmm. Um, I will give you the gifts needed. Uh, Not everybody's going to get a gift uh, of the same kind. Everybody will get different gifts, but you're all supposed to be working together uh, instead of dividing and elevating certain gifts uh, over one another. So, 
I love chapter 13 as an admonition uh, for the church and an encouragement for the church about how to operate as opposed to ripping it out of its context and using it at weddings. Now, if you've used it at a wedding, of course, love applies to wedding too, but it's just not what Paul was intending to write about at that time. Mm -hmm. We are talking about uh, Corinthians, and if you were living in Corinth in the first century, you might have been part of a group of people that had written letters to Paul, and they were asking him, advice on a number of problems that were very perplexing to them. And those problems were things like the Christian view of marriage and the practice of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, right? Right. And even the ways in which uh, you should dress for worship. They're all uh, practical questions they were asking him. They for sure were. prompted him to respond and write the letters. Yeah, I think you've brought up such a, a really important point is... I, I think we may want to rightly shy away from the language that the Bible was written to us, meaning that um, it's being written to 21st century believers, because Paul probably did not have American context in mind when he was writing this. But on the flip side, we can say, what did he have in mind on these very practical questions? Why was he addressing eating food for idols in this way? Or why he was he addressing uh, dressing this way or yeah. covering your head? And and so one of the real tricks to learning how to understand the Bible is you understand why did Paul answer that way to them? Because how he answered is going to be anchored in ways in which Jesus's kingdom operates, and that does become applicable for today. And so um, there is this the the discernment is why did Paul answer that way, and what can we learn about why he answered that can then apply to us today. And so um, the scripture is for us. It just wasn't written to us, if that makes sense. And that distinction is really important because it is for us. It is God-breathed. It is useful for training and, and, and instruction and righteousness, all of what we say it is. But that distinction between between it's being written to us versus being written for us is really important. Mm-hmm. And Paul was also being asked questions about, because I think he had received irregularities on church life. For sure he did. And there was some really some weird stuff that came across. I can't. I mean, wasn't there an incest issue that was like being condoned? Oh, that's another thing that we'll definitely talk about. Besides the division and besides um, just the arrogance of the church, the the sexual depravity of Corinth was, well, we described it as a Pirates of of the Caribbean town twice now, and that was part of the deal. The depravity was really, really difficult and rough, and I think we can learn a lot about what the beauty and the wonder of the one flesh relationship is meant to be, out of which Paul was writing when he was addressing some of these really depraved moments. Because it was it was what you said, people pursuing their mothers and mothers-in-law and the incest. Yeah. It was running rampant. And the Roman Empire was a pretty ugly pagan place in which to minister. And then people also were coming from all kinds of religious backgrounds, including worshiping the emperor himself, which was filled with all sorts of crazy sexual ideas too. So it, yeah, we'll definitely get into that along mm-hmm. the way. Peter, did Paul show up to Corinth more as a theologian or more as a church administrator? Yeah, that's a great (laughs) question, right? Probably both. He had to sort out some issues, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he certainly did, and it was probably both uh, on that. I'm really compelled when he, in the third person in a different letter, describes being caught up in the third heavens and learning about the gospel from Jesus himself. And so whatever all of that three-year period is like, he clearly was a theologian. But he had the ability, Bill, not to just sit around and argue theology and, and, and bat around ideas. He could take those ideas and do the administration in really practical ways from them that that sometimes admonished, sometimes exhorted, sometimes encouraged, sometimes probably cut people to the quick 
but it's it's really fascinating how he always was anchored in humility and being willing to be diminished himself so that God could be revealed in him. And I think if there's any one thing that we we tease out of this letter is Paul's constant posture is one of humility. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, there's a treasure in this clay pot, this broken vessel, all surpassing power of God, all of those things. He, he just is going to pastor from a very different place. Mm-hmm. That is our first episode of Toga Time. I hope you enjoyed it. We're just trying to set uh, the table, get the context uh, going, and we're going to continue this uh, study every Wednesday uh, with Dr. Peter Kapsner. It's going to be an incredibly good study. I can't wait to learn more. Uh, but we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to start our summer sunburn series. I'm excited uh, for our first uh, guest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've got the dog coming in. We do have we got, dog, uh, yes. the dog, We've got the T-dog coming in, so we're excited uh, for that. We're going to talk about uh, how we grow in our relationship with God by gospel-grounded, Holy Spirit-empowered availing ourselves to habits of grace. We're going to have to read that again. I don't even know what that's. I'm not even means. sure what that means either. That maybe, was, maybe during the break we can was, puzzle over that. That was a thought out of T-Dog's head. And right, and I'm sure he didn't even plan that. It just comes out of it. That's the kind of person I he know, is. I know, yeah. and he is uh, the dean of the uh, seminary at Biola University, and we uh, just love having him on. Maybe one of our favorite guests. Yeah, boy, he just, he really is that common. Well, it's just what you just said. He, he's, a, he is a rich theologian, but he's terribly accessible in how he applies all and of it. And very funny. Very funny. And I, I always like that about it. So our Sunburn series starts uh, in just a few minutes. And Dr. Eric Tonis is our special guest to get, get our series started. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.